From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, how we got to this political era of partisan warfare and dishonesty fueled with conspiracy theories. We talk with Washington Post political columnist Dana Milbank, author of the new book, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. He writes that his aim is to show how the Republicans have been hacking away at the foundations of democracy and civil society for the past quarter century. The book begins with Newt Gingrich, who Milbank says pioneered savage politics when he was House Speaker in the 90s. Later, we'll talk with Robin Thede, creator and one of the stars of the HBO comedy series A Black Lady Sketch Show, which is now up for five Emmys. And film critic Justin Chang will review Emily the Criminal, starring Aubrey Plaza. In his new book, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party, my guest Dana Milbank writes about how we got to where we are today. Some members of Congress and some of this year's Republican primary winners are election deniers that subscribe to conspiracy theories. One of Trump's major lies, backed by conspiracy theories, is that the 2020 election was stolen— His attempts to declare himself the winner led to the insurrection. In May of 2021, a poll by the Public Religion Research Institute found that 23% of Republicans agree that, quote, the government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation, unquote. Milbank's book looks back over the past 25 years, tracing the roots of today's political lies and conspiracy theories. He begins in 1994 with Newt Gingrich, then a Republican congressman from Georgia, leading his party to a landslide victory in the midterms, with Republicans taking over the House and the Senate. It was known as the Republican Revolution. During the early months of that revolution, Milbank came to Washington, D.C. to cover Congress for The Wall Street Journal, and then he covered Bill Clinton's presidency and his impeachment for The New Republic. That led to becoming the White House correspondent for The Washington Post and covering George W. Bush's presidency. Milbank has been a political columnist at The Post for the past 17 years. His years covering Washington provided what he describes as a front-row seat for the worst show on earth, the crack-up of the Republican Party and the resulting crack-up of American democracy. Dana Milbank, welcome back to Fresh Air. Let's get to your book, The Destructionist, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. And let's start where your book starts, in the mid-90s, when Republican Congressman Newt Gingrich of Georgia became the House Speaker and took the House in a more divisive direction than it had been. Uh, In fact, you describe him as having pioneered savage politics. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, when people first heard Newt Gingrich uh, speak, you know, during uh, the the run-up to the 1994 Republican Revolution, it was, in a way, he was replacing Bob Michael, who had been uh, this genial World War II veteran, leader of the House Republican minority for 14 years. Uh, he shepherded Ronald Reagan's agenda uh, through the House, through Congress, uh, with some success. But he was all about making deals, about compromise. Uh, and 
then here came Newt, this bomb thrower, and he spoke with an entirely different language. And he, uh, in fact, he recommended to his uh, his congressional uh, peers, Republican uh, peers and, and candidates, uh, that they need to start talking about Democrats as uh, traitors, as liars, uh, as cheaters. So this was an entirely different way of talking about your opponent, your opponent as uh, your enemy as opposed to just being your opponent. It was a a revolutionary, really, way of uh, speaking in politics, certainly at the high level of politics. And after Republicans won in 1994, he became the Speaker of the House and certainly never had a Speaker of the House uh, talking this way. And then suddenly this man was second in line uh, to the presidency with a whole different language. And he actually said the problem with Republicans is they haven't been nasty enough. That was uh, Newt Gingrich's quote. And he said, we need to raise hell all the time. And that's exactly what he did. And uh, today we are sort of living in that world that Newt Gingrich birthed in 1994. What are some of the political tactics that you think he pioneered that are still being used today? Well, when we, th- we think back, to, I mean, we look at our politics today, uh, a series of government shutdowns, uh, a, a series of uh, showdowns over uh, debt defaults, this whole notion of uh, defeating the agenda to, pr- to prove that your opponents have failed. There have always been you know, obstruction and disagreement in politics. I don't want to pretend that there was a golden age when everybody uh, got along. But before uh, the 1994 revolution, there really weren't such things as shutdowns, or if they'd happen, it would be over a technical issue. It would happen for a few days at a time. You know, Ronald Reagan said it's ludicrous to talk about uh, jeopardizing the full faith and credit of the U.S. currency. Uh, so this was an entirely different thing. So if you, if you look at the legislative output, uh, another measure, uh, under Gingrich, it was more than halved. Uh, Uh, even comparing it to the uh, do-nothing Congress of Harry Truman's day, that was well more than twice as productive as it was then. Now, more recently, we've heard uh, Mitch McConnell talk about, you know, the most important thing we do is uh, is make Barack Obama a one-term president, uh, talking about building up a whole library of failures for Obama, one after the other, and those build upon it, and that's how you defeat him. Uh, This is very much uh, what Gingrich pioneered, the idea that you just bring one failure after another, and the voters will reward you, uh, the opposition party, for that. It wasn't necessarily wrong. For anyone who's thinking, oh, but that was like 20, 25 years ago, like, where's Newt Gingrich now? And the answer is, he's still politically active. What's he, what's he up to now? Yes, he always pops up. Well, of course, he had his 2012 presidential run, which uh, didn't get him to the presidency, although arguably he's just as influential in our politics if he had been. Uh, And uh, lo and behold, uh, who is uh, advising Kevin McCarthy and uh, House Republicans in the 2022 midterms? That is one uh, Newt Gingrich. So he he has come back uh, in force. Uh, I'm not sure he ever really left. He was, you know, of course, his wife was the ambassador to the Vatican during the uh, Trump years, and now uh, Newt is on a, on the board of a uh, America First uh, think tank that's uh, close with the Trump organization. So uh, he has very much kept his uh, hand in the, in in the game, and you know you know as I noted earlier, we're very much living uh, in Newt Gingrich's world now, and uh, the rest of the party has come around uh, to his way of thinking. And on Fox News. 
Gingrich said that members of the January 6th committee, of the House January 6th committee, are going to face a real risk of jail after Republicans take over Congress. Uh, He did. And this was actually right after the Washington Post reported that he was advising Kevin McCarthy. So we can only imagine uh, what kind of advice uh, uh, the uh, House Republicans are getting right now. But think about that, the idea that you would uh, threaten people who are running a legitimate congressional investigation with arrest and jail. That doesn't happen uh, in a democracy. Uh, so you know, what I'm trying to talk about in the book is how did we get to a point where you can make such a threat at such a high level uh, and people even uh, take the whole notion seriously? And that is because at various uh, stages along the way, people were pulling at the threads uh, of, of democracy uh, and at uh, the rule of law. And a key one of those was Newt Gingrich. I think part of the point of your book is that well, you out and out state this, that you think Trump is the symptom, he's not the cause, that these past 25 years have enabled him to become so powerful, and even if he leaves the stage, what created him is still there. Yes, Terry, I think that's the most crucial thing to understand. Now, you know, you and I and many of your listeners uh, witnessed uh, many of the events that happened over the past uh, quarter century, Um, but they begin to take on a different context uh, uh, when you look at them through the lens. Uh, of Trump. So, for example, we think of, uh, you know, Trump as uh, pioneering this uh, America first uh, uh, politics, uh, you know, speaking of immigrants as murderers and rapists, but that was very much what Pat Buchanan was talking about in 1992 uh, and 1996 when he was uh, lamenting the treatment of European Americans and non-Jewish whites. Uh, He had a very serious, uh, uh, had a very serious primary campaign for the Republican nomination uh, for the presidency. Uh, you know, we have uh, the threat of uh, violent uh, white supremacy today. But back in 1994, you had uh, Gordon Liddy uh, uh, on his radio show telling people of, if federal agents try to come to disarm them, go for a headshot and kill the sons of bitches. Uh, this was uh, a, year of court, a year before the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, you know, and of course, we, talk, we think of uh, of Donald Trump uh, in this whole new uh, era of alternative facts. But, you know, two decades earlier, uh, the Bush administration led this country to war on what was entirely a false premise. Now, you can say that the uh, intelligence was flawed, and it was, uh, but it definitely showed that uh, Saddam Hussein was not responsible for the 9-11 attacks, that we would not be uh, greeted as liberators, and that Iraq was nowhere near having a nuclear weapon. Um, so and we could talk about the uh, dysfunction, the, the sort of uh, brutal dehumanizing uh, of opponents. All of these things uh, have, uh, are, have antecedents in the two decades, 25 years leading up to Donald Trump. Concurrent with the rise of Newt Gingrich was the rise of Rush Limbaugh on conservative talk radio and then Fox News. I want to ask you a little bit about Alex Jones, one of the perhaps the prime conspiracy theorist in the United States. Um, He has to pay $45 million in punitive damages to the parents of one of the Sandy Hook victims. And there are other suits pending now in which he will likely have to pay damages as well. 
What impact do you think that might have on conspiracy theorists who have media platforms to amplify their conspiracy theories? Well, I'd like to think that it would have some chilling effect on that. I'm not terribly optimistic. Uh, We did see the same sort of thing with Fox News and with Seth Rich, this uh, notion that this Democratic staffer who was killed in a tragic at what the police believe was a, a, a holdup gone bad, became the, the, the same sort of conspiracy theory that uh, uh, he, he was killed because he was hiding secrets uh, for Hillary Clinton. Um, I, the, the problem, as I see it, is that uh, Alex Jones may well be finished by uh, these awards against him and by the exposure of this. But in a way, Alex Jones has already won because you know, when he started InfoWars, he owned conspiracy theories. At this point, uh, the Republican Party and Fox News and the entire right sort of own the conspiracy theory space. Uh, it has become uh, mainstream. When uh, Donald Trump was running for president, he would often uh, cite and quote uh, Alex Jones. He was interviewed uh, by Alex Jones. But Donald Trump, during his presidency, would go Alex Jones one step further. So you had uh, wild, uh, ludicrous conspiracy notions being offered from the bully pulpit, from the very highest uh, level of government. Uh, So uh, in a way, we're all living in this uh, conspiracy universe uh, right now. So even if this... Uh, means uh, the end of Alex Jones, uh, it has already become, it has gotten such a a foothold uh, in our culture. I I don't see anything that happens with Alex Jones changing the broader picture. My guest is Dana Milbank, a political columnist for The Washington Post and a former White House reporter for The Post. His new book is called The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. We'll hear more of our interview after a break, and film critic Justin Chang will review Emily the Criminal, starring Aubrey Plaza as an art school dropout who masters the art of credit card fraud. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwool. Don't sweat the incline. From the trailhead to the summit, enjoy every single step with Smartwool's powerfully durable hike socks. Made with naturally performing merino wool for the perfect fit and cloud-like comfort. Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for Smartwool's mailing list. What are you waiting for? Get out there with Smartwool socks and take every hike to new heights. Let's get back to my interview with Dana Milbank, a political columnist for The Washington Post and a former White House reporter for The Post. His new book, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party, traces the history of today's political lies and conspiracy theories over the past 25 years. Let's get to Karl Rove. He was a political strategist who helped George W. Bush become governor of Texas and then helped him win the presidency. He was sometimes referred to as Bush's brain. Um, And what are some of the tactics you think he pioneered that you see being used today, or not only used today, but taken even further today? 
Right. Well, Karl Rove was known as a dirty trickster going back to his days with the college Republicans uh, and uh, during the Nixon days, um, dumpster diving, that sort of thing. Uh, Very active in Texas politics uh, for a number of years. And in one famous case, it appeared that he had uh, bugged his own office and then uh, blamed (laughs) his opponent for it or the opponent of the candidate he was working for. But I think when he came to the White House uh, with Bush, that really the sort of signature achievement of Karl Rove uh, was that uh, they sat down after the election. It was you know the closest election uh, there had been to that point, and people were thinking, well, Bush has to govern from the middle. Their innovation was that, in fact, uh, that that they're going to turn that on its head. There really is no such thing as the persuadable voter in the middle, and the, the key to politics is bringing out. Uh, your side to the maximum extent possible. So if you maximize turnout of your base Republican voters, you win uh, in elections. Uh, So we had this coming together of the nation after 9-11. Great, huge levels of support for uh, George W. Bush. Uh, Bipartisan hugging going on on the uh, floor of the uh, House between Bush and Democratic leaders. Uh, Karl Rove uh, and the rest of his political team said, we have an opportunity here to politicize the war, basically to run on the war. And they made a decision to politicize that war. Uh, and it worked to their advantage uh, in those midterm elections. But you, you had uh, Bush out there campaigning every day uh, for candidates around the country saying Democrats don't care about the security of the American people. Uh, you had ads, a famous ad uh, attacking uh, Max Cleland, who was a triple amputee from the, the Vietnam War, uh, linking him to Saddam Hussein uh, and to Osama bin Laden. Uh, you saw it later in the swift boating uh, of John Kerry, basically turning his wartime heroism into uh, cowardice and betraying the people that he served with. So you are now questioning the, uh, uh, the patriotism uh, of your opponents, and everything you were doing was to drive uh, turnout among your base. Yeah, so one of Karl Rove's tactics was political jujitsu. You take somebody's strength and turn it against them, make it their weakness, like saying that You think John Kerry was a Vietnam War hero? No, he lied about his medals. He lied about his Purple Heart. Um, You think Matt Cleland is a patriot because he fought in war and lost limbs? No, he's. uh, We're going to link him with. We're going to show pictures of of uh, Bin Laden in his ads and link him to terrorism. Um, Do you think that that's a tactic still being used? turning an opponent's strength into a weakness by lying about what they did. It absolutely is, and particularly in this area of, of patriotism and of questioning. So you're not just saying that your opponent, I disagree with him. You're saying he is disloyal to the United States. Uh, and of, of course, you know, uh, Trump was famous for calling people who opposed him traitors. De- Democrats, of course, were traitors, but uh, the media was the enemy of the American people. Uh, and even Republicans who went against him uh, were traitors. You know, there was a notion before then, of course, there was the McCarthy era, and I'm not suggesting that we ever held ourselves as a country to the notion that, you know, politics stopped at the water's edge. But there was a notion that you did not question the uh, the patriotism uh, of the other side, that the, you, you accepted that they wanted the best thing for the country. So that was, I think, 
uh, the great innovation uh, of Karl Rove, uh, as well as this notion that you just need to bring out your own people to the polls. Uh, and, and that became, we're going to govern with Republicans only. The, the Senate was split 50-50 then, just a, a, as it is today. Uh, and uh, to everybody's surprise, they were able to push through uh, Bush's tax cuts, famously causing a, a, a liberal Republican from Vermont, Jim Jeffords, to bolt the party. Uh, but the idea was you didn't need uh, bipartisan cooperation. The other side was the enemy. The other side was disloyal. We just need to uh, circle the wagons and get all Republicans on board. And then our base Republican voters are going to turn out for us. And I want to ask you about a kind of staged uprising during the Florida recount of the 2000 contested presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. And I'm, I'm referring to the Brooks Brothers riot. Would you describe what that was and how it was staged? Um, sure. This was down in uh, Miami-Dade outside the elections board, and they were going to have uh, a recount after that uh, famously close uh, election. So you had a lot of operatives, Republican operatives, flown in from around the country uh, by Karl Rove's political operation uh, in large part. They were uh, summoned uh, and organized. Among the people doing it was Roger Stone of, of future Trump fame. And they uh, basically created this uh, mob outside of the uh, election office. Uh, they were chanting, stop the fraud, stop the count, cheaters. Uh, Democratic officials were uh, kicked and pushed and punched. Uh, uh, there was support for this on uh, conservative talk radio. And ultimately, they succeeded. They, they, uh, the Miami-Dade Elections Board backed down and they said they would cut off uh, the recount. So, you know, looking at it itself, you know, it's kind of jokingly called the Brooks Brothers Riot because of all these, you know, young, white, well-dressed uh, Republican men flown in to pretend they're rioting. Um, but, uh, you know, when we look at this uh, in retrospect, uh, it it uh, it was not an isolated event. You know, we had John Ashcroft, who became Attorney General after Bush won. You know, after the five four Supreme Court decision, uh, saying dead people had had voted, votes had been bought, voters intimidated, ballot boxes stuffed. The Donald Trump fraud claims of twenty sixteen and twenty twenty can be traced right back there to George W. Bush in uh, the year two thousand. What is Karl Rove doing today? Well, he's, uh, I, I, should I call him a colleague? He's writing a column for the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, editorial page, and he's running a dark money outfit that uh, supports uh, Republican candidates. Do you think uh, that Trump will run again? Uh, I am certain that he wants to. Uh, and the only thing that w I believe that would stop him uh, is ill health. So I think the more important question is Trumpism is in, and there is no threat to that within the Republican Party. So uh, if it's not Donald Trump, it's Ron DeSantis or somebody else who has modeled himself after Trump. So in a sense, either way, Donald Trump wins. So one more question for you. In a few years, the U.S. will no longer be a white majority country. And that demographic change is likely to affect politics. What do you think the effect will be? 
Well, I think that demographic change is already affecting our politics. It's a backlash uh, against the rising multicultural America that is bringing out uh, white evangelical Christians to vote in extraordinary numbers, uh, non-college educated uh, white voters. You know, that is very much the backlash that drove uh, Donald Trump to power. In the long run, uh, this will be resolved. We will be a multicultural uh, country. You can, you can only defy uh, gravity uh, for so long. So in the long run, I am optimistic that we will overcome uh, the, the current strife uh, that we are dealing with. The problem is, is a long time between now and then. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, Republicans, in order to hold on to power, are basically destroying the fundamentals of democracy, of, of one man, one vote, to sustain uh, power over the near term. Are you concerned that by the time we're no longer a white majority country, that democracy will be sufficiently destroyed, that the multicultural nature of our country won't register at the polls? Uh, well, I'm very concerned about that, and that's why I've I've written this book. Um, you know, I, in the in the very long run, uh, it it becomes undeniable that uh, this will be a multicultural America. But if we are not, uh, if we reach that point and we are no longer a democracy, and we've turned ourselves into a North American version of Hungary, uh, where there is no longer a free press, well. We have to just keep fighting so that we don't uh, reach such an eventuality, and that's what I'm going to do. Dana Milbank, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much, Terry. I enjoyed it. Dana Milbank is a political columnist for The Washington Post and a former White House reporter for The Post. His new book is called The Destructionists. In the new independent drama, Emily the Criminal, Aubrey Plaza plays a Los Angeles woman who turns to credit card fraud to pay off her debts. The movie had its virtual premiere earlier this year at the Sundance Film Festival and is now in theaters. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review. For a while now, it seemed as if there's no role too absurd or outrageous for Aubrey Plaza to play. An Instagram stalker in Ingrid Goes West, a naughty nun in The Little Hours, a flesh-eating zombie in Life After Beth. The character she plays in Emily the Criminal, an art school dropout who masters the art of credit card fraud, sounds almost low-key by comparison. But if this is one of Plaza's more straightforward, dramatic performances, absent her usual deadpan comic touches, it's also one of her strongest. She holds us at nearly every moment of this engrossing Los Angeles noir, about a woman whose luck ran out long ago and who decides to seize control of her life and livelihood. Emily is technically already a criminal when we meet her. She has an aggravated assault conviction on her record that's made it hard for her to find steady work, let alone pay off her $70,000 in student loans. She barely gets by making food deliveries and sharing a crowded L.A. apartment with two roommates. Plaza plays the character with an outsider's toughness. Emily grew up in New Jersey, and we can hear it in her accent. But also the shrewdness of someone who knows when to fight back and when to go with the flow. That talent suits her well when a lucrative but illegal opportunity comes her way. Her task is to buy some pricey electronic equipment using a phony credit card, then slip out before the theft is detected. 
The merchandise gets picked up and resold, and Emily gets paid $200. Not bad for an hour's work. It's supposed to be just a one-time thing, but Emily is soon hooked and coming back for more. The man who oversees this operation and takes her under his wing is Yusuf, a Lebanese immigrant played by the charismatic Theo Rossi from shows like Sons of Anarchy and Luke Cage. Yusuf realizes that Emily makes a pretty good crook, partly because few people suspect her of being one. The movie tacitly acknowledges the racist and sexist assumptions that would give a white woman an advantage in this line of work. But it also keys us into Emily's feelings of fear, anxiety, and exhilaration as she starts taking on bigger, higher-stakes jobs. Soon she's got her own little racket, printing the credit cards and arranging the sales herself. In this scene, she meets with a customer in a parking lot who tries to rip her off. He's played by the late Ricardo Flanagan, who died last October after shooting this role. So it's 600. Six? No, it's three. 300. Uh, no, 600. Say three online. Uh, no. No, I texted you six. I'll show you. 300. For real, man? It's, we're in broad daylight. Oh, what's up? You gonna call the police? I mean, we could just steal this shit for free. Uh, all right, all right. 300. Sure. No worries. Come on now. Where you going? Hold up. Hold up. 600, yes or no? As the work gets more dangerous, Emily realizes she's going to need more than the pepper spray in her purse to defend herself. The writer-director John Patton Ford, making a solid feature debut, skillfully ratchets up the tension at key moments. And Plaza is both vulnerable and fierce as a woman having to figure out her own fight-or-flight responses in real time. One botched early job leads to a car chase that's all the more harrowing for being so realistically staged. Yusuf guides Emily through every step of her enterprise, and Plaza and Rossi's chemistry deepens as their character's initially combative relationship gives way to romantic sparks. Naturally, their emotional bond will complicate their business dealings in all sorts of ways, some more believable than others. As things start to unravel, the movie's third-act plotting gets a little too ragged for its own good. But if Emily the Criminal isn't always successful as a genre exercise, it's thoroughly gripping as a portrait of a woman always operating in survival mode. It's telling that even with her new source of income, Emily doesn't take anything for granted and never stops working every angle. She keeps trying to land an interview at an upscale ad agency, where interns are expected to work full-time for free. She keeps her food delivery job, even though the pay is lousy and the benefits non-existent. What millions of American workers endure day in and day out, the movie suggests, is no less exploitative than any of Emily's illegal activities. The movie may be called Emily the Criminal, but it reserves its harshest indictment for the society that made her what she is. Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed Emily the Criminal, which is now playing in theaters. Coming up, we'll hear from Robin Thede, the creator, showrunner, and one of the stars of the HBO comedy series A Black Lady Sketch Show, which is nominated for five Emmys. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
Our guest, Robin Thede, is the creator and one of the stars of the HBO comedy series A Black Lady Sketch Show, which is nominated for five Emmys. She spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, about the show and her career. Tanya is the host of the podcast Truth Be Told. Here's Tanya with more. For a long time, Robin Thede had this idea. What if she created a comedy sketch show solely written, directed, and starring black women? Believe it or not, that hadn't happened before then. Now, a black lady sketch show is in its third season. Here's a clip from the latest season, a sketch called Don't Rain on My Berets, where Thede plays a meteorologist giving the weather forecast in a way that just about every black woman would appreciate. Well, Tulsa looks like we have more showers and storms in the forecast for today as a cold front makes its way across the state like a white tooth comb on wash day. The rain continues on Tuesday, so I'm not recommending a wash and go style just yet. You need to go wash and go bundle up with some Malaysian, Brazilian, Peruvian, kinky straight, kinky curly. Doesn't matter. Anywhere from five to eight packs should do it if you want to get on these IG levels of beauty. You know what I mean? By Wednesday, hump day, the winds are going to pick up and so will your lace front. So it's got to be secured. Robin Thede holds the distinction of the first in many regards. She was the first black woman head writer ever for a late night talk show, writing for the nightly show with Larry Wilmore, and from there went on to host her own late night show on BET called The Rundown. This summer, a black lady sketch show was nominated for five Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Variety Sketch Series. Robin Thede, welcome to Fresh Air and congrats on your Emmy nominations. Thank you, Tanya. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, in addition to some of your other firsts, you were also the first black head writer of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And it made me think that, I mean, you're basically proof that being the first still happens for people of color in America. I'm just wondering how that feels to hold that distinction in 2022. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel great because it feels like we should have made more advancements. You know, I mean, I, being the first black woman to be a, a head writer in late night, to be the head writer of the White House Correspondents Center, um, you know, the first black woman to create a sketch series, the first black woman to be nominated for a number of awards related to that sketch series. I mean, it's like all these firsts happen every year. Our team this year is the first all black team to be nominated. Although we're the first... We don't want to be the last. And I called it a black lady sketch show specifically for that reason, because I wanted it to be one of many, not the. Your co-stars on a black lady sketch show are immensely talented. Um, They're able to go in and out of characters in dynamic ways. In fact, many times when I'm watching the show, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is the same woman that was in the last one. I couldn't even they just transform. What was the process in finding them? Oh, I knew them all. So, I mean, it's like, it's so funny. Like people have been like, how did you get a room full of black women writers? How did you find so many? And I'm like, first of all, there were six. Um, But (laughs) the great thing is like, even when I was staffing up for a season, I texted 24 black women comedy writers, many of whom were Emmy nominated or had Emmys. Most people thought, oh, you had to get like brand new writers who had never written. I'm like, no, I got vets. Um, uh, And so... I think the common misconception is that for writers and performers in comedy, especially sketch comedy, that the black women just aren't there. But that's not true. I want to talk a little bit about the process in the writer's room. And we know that for 
a long time, writers' rooms, even for shows about Black people, didn't actually have many or any Black writers. Your writers' room is made up of all Black women, and I just need to know what that's like. Can you describe what that's like? It was a real challenge for all of us to, like, I don't know, feel like we weren't, you know, dreaming. I think for the first season, it was really like, wow, this is crazy. And I think, you know, when it comes to pitching ideas, people had to shake off this idea that they had to explain themselves or their blackness uh, before they could pitch. But um, yeah, I think it's always a bit of a shell shock to come into a room and not have to say, okay, well, you know the singer Patti LaBelle? It's like, yeah, we all know her. You don't have to explain it before you pitch, you know? (laughs) Um, So uh, I think it's always an adjustment because we are so used to having to justify our presence uh, in other writers' rooms and to not feel like a token, you know? And I think that that's that's really tricky. And it's, it's, um, in our room, it's just something that's taken away so we can do our best work. An example is a sketch from this latest season called Funeral Ball, which is set at a funeral for a man named Claudacious. And as if a funeral for someone with that name couldn't get even, (laughs) couldn't get dramatic, uh, the service turns into a drag ball and the pastor who swoops in is the legendary Bob the Drag Queen. We actually have a clip where Bob the Drag Queen introduces the secret lives and secret wives of the dearly departed Claudacious. Let's listen. My husband, Claudacious, was a righteous man, a king whose only sin was a love for dessert big mess. You know that, Roger. Every night for 82 years, his favorite snack before bed was oxtails, gravy, a little gummy worm. Oh, I'm going to miss him so. It's too sad up in here, sister soldier. I can't let you send my big brother Claudacious away like this. Y'all know how we do. It's the funeral ball. from the legendary house of high blood pressure. Now our first category is insisting on a solo, knowing damn well you can't sing. If your name is not in the program, but the spirit moves you and you think this is your time, please make your way to the floor. Herman Sting, yes, Mariah can't carry a note. She's serving the children. Is she singing? Is she screaming? We don't know. Yes, come through Ariana Grande. Robin, can you please take us to the writer's room for this one? It wouldn't be so funny if it wasn't true. A lot of things can be revealed at a person's funeral. (laughs) That's true. This is the sequel to season one's Basic Ball. Uh, And uh, we wanted to expound upon the dynamics of a Black funeral and what better way to do it than with a ball? Um, so yeah, I mean, Bob is epic and legendary and just incredible. And we were so excited to have Bob back. But um, yeah, the characters are just kind of taking you through all the random uh, people you'll see that might show up at a black funeral. It could be secret wives, secret kids, uh, people who are just there to eat the corners off the mac and cheese. <laughs> you know, it's like, it really is, um, you know, we try not to really exaggerate. We try to really just find those things that are going to resonate with the audience. And even if you're not black watching it, 
you're going to learn something about black funerals <laughs> while you're laughing and watching the incredible dancers. And we got a bunch of dancers from all the different houses from the show Legendary um, and beyond uh, in the ball culture. So we always try to make that really authentic every year. You mentioned folks who are not black being able to relate to the show. It has been written. Many people say that the show is universally relatable. What have you heard from audiences who are not black or female about the show? Yeah, I think that, you know, our comedy is specifically written and specifically performed, but it is universally funny. I think comedy is the universal language. Um, And uh, uh, what have I heard? Um, Just that people love it. I mean, across the board, I hear the same things. I think that just the things people relate to are different, right? There's a sketch season one called No Makeup, which has to do with a woman who goes to work with a full face of makeup every day, but she's an hour late because she has to beat her face. And her coworker says, just come without makeup, who cares? And she's like, okay. And she shows up, shows up and she slowly turns into a zombie and dies because people think she looks like death without makeup. And that's just like, that's a very relatable thing, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and then we have really specific sketches like the funeral ball and, and don't rain on my berates that are very much about black experiences. But I think the ultimate through line for all of these is really that, um, it's, it's black women portraying these universal ideas with specific, uh, cultural references that either make you feel seen or allow you to feel educated about the black community in an authentic way. Again, not that we can speak for every black person, but that we are able to show you something that's not us being a criminal on law and order or us being, you know, whatever, right? A strong black woman even, right? That's a stereotype. Not every black woman is a strong black woman. Sometimes you're strong, sometimes you're weak, you know? Sometimes you suck, sometimes you're great, you know? So... I think um, we just want the latitude to be able to show the world that. You were a head writer for The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore. Here's a clip of you on the show back in 2016, educating Larry on the nuances of Black women's nonverbal communication from the single hand clap to the double hand wave. Let's listen. Well, let's move on to our next gesture, sure. okay? This okay. is the double hand clap versus mm-hmm. the double hand clap on syllables. All right. Okay. Now, this one's easier to spot, but it can be deceptive. Okay, Okay. so check this out. All right. right. Yay! Great job on your performance. Oh. Oh, Yeah. yeah. See, that that just looks like regular applause. Well, that's correct, because it is. Okay. But compare that to the double hand clap on syllables. Syllables, okay. What did you say to me, Larry? I didn't didn't say anything. Don't interrupt me, Larry. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm oh, just kidding. oh, but yeah, okay. but now you can see how effective oh, wow. it is, yeah, right? That, yeah, man, yeah. I was, I was the scared. double, yeah, the double yeah. handcuff on syllables is used to emphasize a point. Wow, yes. that was so effective, Robin. Yeah. That's um, it, it really emphasizes an angry point, right? Oh yeah, well, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. it's, it's, it's tricky because it can be used for anger mm-hmm. or excitement, such as, oh my god, these shoes are on sale. <laughs> Nice. Okay, that's crazy, man. That's okay, crazy. now we're only we're allowed to do that. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Okay, I loved this one so much because it is true. We, you know, we're all on Zoom these days, and I find I what do I do with my hands because I need to articulate to the people in the meetings the black lady way. Um, Larry says that it took you a while to bet on yourself. How do you interpret what? what he means when he says that. 
I think when I was doing my own late night show, he was like, yeah, this is you, but it's not what you really want to be doing. You know, and he's known me since my early sketch performing days. And um, so I think he just knew that the sketch show was really, you know, what my ultimate calling would be. But I don't, I believe everything in my career has happened exactly how and when it's supposed to. Um, and that I spent the better part of 15, 16 years writing for others. Um, and that's a long time, you know, this day and age that doesn't happen. You know, a young comedian, everybody is like, oh, that's the hottest person. And they have a sitcom they're starring in all of a sudden, you know, but that didn't happen. Uh, when I got into the business in, in properly in 2002, the industry just wasn't like that. UPN and CW were starting to go away and there was no black programming, uh, mainstream for a few years. Uh, and then there was the writer's strike and then there was the recession, everything got cut back. But now we've got so many TV shows on the air that we've had more chances to do this. And I know that if I would have tried to do a black lady sketch show before the time that I did, the industry wouldn't have been ready and it wouldn't have happened, you know? So, um, I think everything happens in divine timing. This idea for a sketch show that centered black women where was something that you'd had this idea for years. What was it specifically about that intersection? Not just a black show, a black sketch show, but a black lady sketch show. Well, being a black lady, you know, it was nice to <laughs> it was nice to get my friends together to make it. But yeah, I started in college performing with all black sketch groups and then at Second City, I was doing shows with nothing but black women. Um, a lot of the time. And that was so fun. And then when I got to LA, I was in, I think, five more sketch groups with only black women. Um, and so this is something that I've done many, many, many times and uh, live on stage. And so I wanted to bring that to television. I was like, well, why can't we do that for black women? You know, we'd had in Living Color, Chappelle, Key and Peele, but they were all really focused for the most part on black men. So I was like, okay, everybody's had their thing except for black women. Like we need this. And so I think it was just about cornering the market from a group of people who hadn't been included in the party. Uh, and that was black women. Do you have any characters that are your favorites that you just love to do? I love doing all of them, honestly. Everything from somebody who just has two lines to, you know, the most popular ones like Dr. Hadassah and Chris and Shanidra and all these characters. But I enjoy each of them differently. And the best moment for me is when I get into hair and makeup and I get to like slip into that character fully and walk on set in character and never break until we call rap for the end of the day. And I think that's just really fun because you have to remember when I'm dressed as Hadassah or Chris or whoever. I'm also the showrunner, so I'm like talking to my department heads and giving people like, you know, approvals and instructions and stuff fully in character, which I find hilarious because they have to take me seriously when I have like, you know, blacked out teeth or a bald cap or scars on my face or, you know, whatever, or a mustache, you know. So um, I find that to be genuinely hilarious on set, but something that the public doesn't get to experience. But I just think it's so funny because... You know, the boss doesn't normally look like that on most shows. Can you describe Dr. Hadassah for those who haven't seen the show? Yeah, Dr. Hadassah Olienka, Ali Youngman, pre-PhD, is a charlatan of sorts, a saleswoman of sorts, a conspiracy theorist of sorts, 
a hertep is what we call her. Um, she's somebody who doesn't believe women should really work outside of the home and that they need to serve their king, uh, who is ideally their husband at home. And she has her own king, Supreme Ramik. But she's just somebody who spouts a lot of conspiracy theories about the world. Um, she has her own television show called Black Table Talk. And she is somebody who's very unexpectedly risen to be one of the most popular characters on the show. But she is, um, I've known women like this who constantly think everything is a conspiracy. So I'm excited to see where she goes in future seasons and uh, what her influence will be. Robin Thede, thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, you thought a pandemic was going to stop me? Start off that Spike Lee dolly shot because I've been silent for too long. That's right, it's me, Dr. Hadassah Olayinka Ali Young. Google me, then throw your smartphone in the trash. It's making you stupid. Shink, shink, shink. 5G was created to infiltrate our brains with the devil's propaganda. TikTok, TikTok, you're wasting your fertile years on the ground. The only 5Gs I recognize is the five bloods. Five triumphant black men going back to steal the oppressor's gold from Asia. Robin Thede is the creator, showrunner, and one of the stars of HBO's A Black Lady Sketch Show, which is nominated for five Emmys. She spoke with our guest interviewer, Tanya Mosley, host of the podcast, Truth Be Told. Fresh Air Weekend is produced this week by Thea Chaloner. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shurrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Henry Bodonato, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs>